welcome to episode 11 of the Brinkman Podcast. I'm Eric Schilder. And I'm Sarah Boltman. And we welcome you to this podcast devoted to talking about the Brinkman Adventures, the audio, family audio drama about missionaries and about the Brinkman family uh, based loosely or closely in some, some instances <laughs> on the man with us here, Ian Boltman. Hello. Thank you for having, he's back. for joining us. Yeah, he's back. Great to be here. <laughs> so um, we missed him. We did. We, we did. <laughs> the, the chair was looked like no one was sitting in it yeah. for that time. Tears. But um, we're we're glad that Ian is back, and we're talking about one of the earliest episodes of mm-hmm. the Brinkman Adventures, and that would be Dangerous Waters. The I think you said last time, Sarah. That it was the only three-parter? Mm-hmm. The is, only three-parter, yep. Is uh, looking at Ian three. for confirmation, but I doubt he knows. This is okay. true. Okay, he's giving us the nod that uh, it's the only three-parter. So what we're going to be talking about specifically is part three mm-hmm. of that epic trilogy. Yeah, right. <laughs> It started out with a bang, my It goodness. started out with a bang, exactly. And just to kind of set us up, uh, Ian... Can you tell us a little bit about how you chose or why you chose to do this subject or this content? Yeah, sure. So when the idea for the Brinkman Adventures came, I thought to myself, we need to start out with just a really, really good story, a really good missionary story. So I started thinking, what what missionary stories have I heard through my life? And the one that immediately came to mind was the story of Dave and Barb Anderson and their mission team that crashed in the Bering Sea. And uh, I remember I was in Alaska. Um, I think I might have been uh, teaching at Alaska Bible Institute at the time. I was driving downtown Homer, Alaska, and I was listening to Moody Radio. And on Moody, they had Focus on the Family. And there was an interview of Dave and Barb on Focus. And I remember them telling the story of, of crashing in the Bering Sea. And I fished in those sea, in that same sea. I knew those waters. They're very cold. And it's, it's wide open wilderness. And it's a terrifying thought to crash in any ocean. But yeah. to crash in that ocean is extra terrifying. And as I listened to this story, driving my old Subaru downtown Homer, Alaska, I was literally shaken to the core and I pulled off the road. I couldn't drive. I broke out in a cold sweat thinking about this. You know, I listened to Dave tell a story, and I think Barb might have been in that broadcast too. And uh, it really it really shook me. And so when I was thinking about, oh, and the story is incredible, the, mis- the, the miracles that happened. And so I thought when, when we started the Brinkman Adventures, I thought that would be a great story to tell. And so I remember I, I, Google was a fairly new thing to me. I went <laughs> onto the computer and I Googled Dave Anderson. And up came, <laughs> up came a name, Dave Anderson, and up came the phone number. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just call That's this. Miracle number one was that for all the Dave Andersons in the world, <laughs> you got the correct one. I wasn't talking to a refrigerator repairman. That's right. In like Biloxi or something. So I dial this number, and um, on comes Dave Anderson, the Dave Anderson. And I introduced myself to him and told him what I wanted to do. And I think without even missing a beat, Dave. Knowing him now, I'm pretty sure this is what happened. Sure, yeah. I think he said to me, uh, Rescue 911 tried to do the story, but there were too many helicopters involved. Would have cost too much. And <laughs> I think Reader's Digest, Rama in Real Life, tried tried it a couple times, but it was just too convoluted and complicated. And so they ditched the story. But if you want to give a shot, <laughs> go for it. 
Wow. And and I remember thinking, wow, yeah, he just gave me permission to do a thesis. And I think he said it's God's story. So you know, are you the one, Dave, that has the rights to the story? Are you? Am I talking to the right guy? Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's God's story. Go for it. Tell it. And so we did. We we launched with this amazing, incredible story. And I'm so glad we did. I mean, what is it? Nine years later, and I'm still just really happy. And I believe that God led us to the right story to start the Brinkmans with. Absolutely. And, you know, the good news is that and here you're, you're told it's, it's kind of a, a story that's difficult to tell. But thankfully for audio drama, helicopters are relatively cheap. Let me say one other thing, um, Eric, before you move on from this. You know, we, we've produced now 60 episodes of The Brinkman Adventures. And over the years, we've gotten better at the radio drama genre and better at, at writing and, and producing. Um, but when we did the story, we said, you know, we want, we want radio stations from the very beginning to play this. And we, we don't want to be embarrassed right. down the road because it was, it was bad. And to this day, I still have listeners say, my favorite episode is Dangerous Waters. I mean, it's, it runs the gamut of our episodes, but that's yeah. often people's favorite episode. And so, so that's a great thing that people mm-hmm. love. And it bears testimony to how powerful that story is. And God helped us, I think, mm-hmm. um, when we didn't know what we were doing to produce a pretty good radio show. Well, I listened to that scene of the crash and those people in the water. And, and I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, this, that's hard to act anyway. And Ian, right. you said that they were not even Yeah, the story behind, from... behind that was, again, we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, you know, we had some help and some advice, but we went into the studio with, with guys basically from my church who, you know, they were the drama team for my church. And um, we did that scene one time. In one what? One take. And let me tell you, uh, after doing this for a number of years... You hardly ever do one take. Yeah. You do six, seven sometimes. But that incredibly complex, long scene was one take. Those guys That's were amazing. amazing. We have it on video. It's just a, such a cool thing. And again, I think I think God did something there mm-hmm. amazing to tell that story. Yeah. Well, I think we should take a listen. Engineer Josh, roll the clip. Oh, no. Dave, wake up. We've lost our engines. What? Dad, I'm scared. Anchorage Center, our fuel just went out. Understand your fuel has gone out of this time and you're descending into uh, where at this time? Uh, we're about two miles short of Sledge Island. Folks, we may need to make an emergency landing. Dave, what do we do? People, we gotta pray like never before. Oh God, no, please, no, I don't wanna die. I'm only a kid. I wanna grow up and get married someday. Lord, this is exactly what I was afraid would happen. You knew my fears. Why this? Why God? This doesn't seem fair. Please God, please God, do a miracle and start that engine. Dad, we're getting closer to the water. The waves look so big. Michelle, if we crash in the water, we're gonna hit hard. Even if you're hurt, get out. Yes, Dad. Just remember, honey, I love you, and God loves you. Don't ever forget that, no matter what happens. Teddy, I love you, too. Give me your hand. Bob, tell them we'll all exit out the emergency door in the back. Hey, listen. We're going to exit out of the emergency door in the back. We don't push the nose in. If we dig in, this plane will come apart. Speed, 90 knots. Oh, Jesus, we need you now. Hang on, everyone. We're going to hit. Is everybody okay? 
Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I, I mean, it kind of makes me, well, okay, I, you know, just listened to it, but I want to hear it again. Yeah. Uh, you know, so apparently airplane crashes are a pretty good uh, evangelism tool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> obviously, but, you know, it's it's really interesting. Yeah. I think you managed to capture, capture I mean, I think it's it's got to be hard to... To kind of put together an airplane yeah, crash what you... uh, in audio, I mean, we're so used to seeing it uh, on the big screen. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I'd like to know is a little bit is what is it like to be yeah. in a plane crash? And uh, to that end, I don't want to know. Well, <laughs> I want to hear about. Okay, let's <laughs> let's put it that person. way. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to know myself. Yeah. So let's. I'd like to hear about what it, what it's like. Uh, and we have on the line, our special guest is uh, the man who lived through it, Dave Anderson. Welcome, Dave. I'm really glad to be part of this. And uh, it's <laughs> it's great to, you know, in a sense, relive the story of uh, what actually happened on about 7.30 in the evening on the 13th of August, 1993. And... Uh, and it's yeah, it's really a it's a great story. I've been able for the last number of years to tell the story to in a lot of situations. Um, I'll just tell you that in addition to audiences and focus on the family and TBN and CBN and Daystar, um, the place where the story has had the greatest interest is when I'm sitting next to somebody at. On an airplane up at thirty thousand oh, feet, sure. I so it is a good interest level tool. is huge. Oh my goodness! And uh, it's to good hear. to be here. So it's 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 fun or interesting to relive as long as you're kind of sitting on a couch right now, I guess, and it's entertaining. Uh, after that, it becomes useful, yeah. I suppose. Now, so that that leads to my question. We were, we were kind of talking about this earlier, which is, you know, we've we've all seen crashes in movies. I think one of the first movies I ever saw was like airplane or airport 1977 or whatever it was where the, you know, Charlton Heston. And, you know, we, we seem to be fascinated with, yeah. with plane crashes. Tom Hanks castaway. Castaway crash. is the one that, yeah. that springs to my yeah. mind. So, so we're, we're going to ask you what's, well, what's it like? I mean, what's going through your head and, yeah, what was that and what, like what is you? it? Yeah. What does it feel like all of a sudden you're flying and then the next minute you're in the water? When you hit the water 90 miles an hour, well, here's what happened. I actually was dozing. We had taken off from uh, St. Lawrence Island on a one-hour and 15-minute flight to Nome. And about 45 minutes into that flight, uh, we were at 7,000 feet. I was leaning against the window, and I can pretty much doze on airplane flights pretty easily. And I, when when there's a normal sort of up and down bumping from air pockets, I I'm okay with that, and I mm. I don't sometimes don't even wake up. But this that movement that happened was a side by side movement. It's hard to describe that when you're not physically moving your arms to demonstrate it. But it was enough of a strange movement. I opened my eyes. And I look back, and my wife, Barb, and other people in the plane who were sitting, looking up toward the front, I was the only person sitting toward the, looking toward the back. I looked at them, and their eyes were as big as saucers, practically, and they were all pointing to the header over the windshield. And I turned around and looked at the gas gauges. There are two gas gauges on, on a plane, 
Uh, one is the regular tank and one is the auxiliary tank. And both of them are supposed to be full when you leave someplace. And at some point, you switch a lever and the auxiliary tank kicks in and you just keep on flying. Well, the needles on both gauges were in the red empty zone. And it was shortly after that that one engine quit. And um, our pilot was in touch with the air traffic controllers in Anchorage, 760 miles away, and said, we've lost an engine. And they said, are you declaring an emergency? And he said, no, we, you know, you fly a twin engine plane without, with one engine, it works just fine. And so the plan was to fly on to Nome. But then uh, nine and a half minutes later, down at 3,500 feet, the other engine quit. And then is when he told the air traffic controllers that we've lost the other engine. And they said, can you declare your location? And he gave the longitude and latitude. And that's all he could get out on the radio. In three and a half minutes, we fell three and a half thousand feet. In those three and a half minutes, we were having what I've described hundreds of times as a Luther Baptocostal prayer meeting. <laughs> That's when you get five Lutherans and two Baptists inside the same plane at the same time. And you pray short prayers. You pray, God save us and Lord help us. And in the back, from the back of the plane, I heard one of the guys pray, Lord, I want to see my family again. And then, just before we hit the water, my wife, Barb, prayed the most practical prayer you could ever imagine. She prayed, Lord, you could start the engines. <laughs> and, um, and the, uh, you know, just before, she, you know, she prayed that prayer, we were getting closer and closer and closer to the Bering Sea. And um, she prayed that prayer, and seconds, maybe a second or two later, we plowed into the ocean 90 miles an hour. And the story is full of miracles. So many that you couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly share them, you know, on this, on this uh, webcast. Um, the, the fact that the plane did not crack open, that's a miracle. And we just would have just fallen into the ocean uh, as the plane just fell apart or that a wing caught one of the swells. In that case, oh. we would have sort of spiraled down mm -hmm. into the ocean mm. Um, but the plane belly flopped into the ocean and we got out of the plane in a minute and a minute later, the plane sank and Barb and I were the last two out of the planes. There are two exits, the regular exit toward the back of the plane on the left-hand side as you're looking forward and then the emergency exit over the wing and Barb and I were the last two to get out of that exit over the wing and we stood on the wing for, you know, a few, oh, I don't know, a few seconds, thinking maybe the plane was going to float. It didn't. And as some of you know, we didn't have any life jackets or rafts, but inside the plane with us were 17 empty five-gallon gas cans. And I would not be sitting here on the telephone talking to you about this if it weren't for a kind of ugly five-gallon gas can that says Chevron, Chevron Avgas on it. And uh, we grabbed the gas cans, and out the door we went. Pretty soon the plane disappeared, yeah. and we're going up and down three to five foot swells uh, with, uh, with the plane having disappeared. And seven of us uh, started to sort of get um, 
well, we 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 just got the 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 current in the water separated us all over the place. We, we tried to stay together, but we, we couldn't. My wife Barb went off in one direction, and other people in the group went off in other directions, and um, so we um, we were just hanging on to the gas cans. We had no idea if anybody knew where we were, if anybody would, would be coming for us, if we were going to survive this, if this was our sort of final resting place. In fact, I I shouldn't even tell you this on your on your webcast, but my, I said the dumbest thing to my wife Barb. If there's any humor in the story at all, here it is. Okay. And I don't think you've heard this. I said to Barb, we may not need those cemetery plots we've got in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's just awful. I mean, it was just Bobbing terrible. I say down. that to people, and people just kind of, they almost want to get up and slug me for saying such a stupid thing. But I did. Could you see the land from, from where you were? We could. We could see. We were 20... Well, we were 24 miles from Nome, off to the east. We were probably, oh, maybe 18 miles from land. Not that land that you could land on, Hmm. because the shoreline of Alaska is really rocky and ruggy and so forth. And then we were two and a half miles, and, and again, I would not be here talking to you if it weren't for a 760 foot island island that was two and a half miles from us um the island is is 760 feet that's 150 feet higher than the washington monument just to give you some perspective mm-hmm. and and initially i looked at that island i mean you could see something 760 feet when you're two and a half miles from it and i thought oh maybe we could swim there well that obvious that idea went out of the went out <laughs> real fast mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, a little boy asked me in a Lutheran school one time, did the water hurt? I said, no. As a matter of fact, at first we were in shock, and then we were numb. So I don't think any of the seven of us had quite the complete awareness of how desperately cold 36-degree water was. Life expectancy, we found out later, was uh, three to five to 13 minutes. Wow. Um, it's a good thing we didn't know that. I've said many times, wow. if we had known that, if we had known how cold the water was, we'd have just died of fright. Huh. We'd have just, we'd have just yeah. given up. And um, and we were hanging onto our gas cans. We're going up and down with the swells. We're separating uh, so so much so that some of us could not even be seen uh, from each other. And. Um, we did ask the pilot in a minute, a minute or two or three after the plane sank, does anybody know where we are? Hmm. And uh, the pilot said, I gave our latitude and longitude. Right. So that, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't terribly helpful information to us, but that, at least we knew that. And uh, the air traffic controllers in Anchorage, Chris and Greg, were listening to this news from our pilot, and then the radio went dead. They were getting up to make an official report. I said, he said, I said, he said. Bleep coming across their screen at their flight center in Anchorage. 
and it was a plane flying IFR. That's I'm sorry, VFR. That's visual okay. versus instrument. And they didn't have any indication on their screen who it was, how to get a hold of that plane. But they called the flight center in Nome. The flight center said who that pilot was and what his frequency was, and they got a hold of him. And that pilot turned around and started circling over us uh, several minutes, actually, didn't see us. And at the last possible second, the man sitting next to the pilot said, go around one more time, I think I saw something. He's the only person in this whole story I've never met. Huh. And um, I talked to him on the phone one time. He said, well, he said, I, it, was, it was just a coincidence. <laughs> and, and I said, well, your coincidence helped to save our lives. And so that's, that's the only interaction I've, I've never really had with anybody in this whole story. Um, once we were seen, um, the air, the flight center in Nome was listening to all of this and they were able to get two helicopters, one that was normally stationed in Nome uh, and one that was there doing ge geophysical survey work to come out to do what they can. And people, that the only equipment they brought with them were seven body bags. Oh. Wow. They were not equipped with winches and cables and slings and baskets and all of the dramatic, the wonderful equipment you see with dramatic mm -hmm. rescues from helicopters. They didn't sound very hopeful. <laughs> 25 minutes, they carried out what has been called the most dramatic air-sea rescue in aviation history. Our pilots, having done the most heroic helicopter flying in the entire world in 1993. Wow. Well, so I, I want to just... Uh, skip back uh, before, right before the rescue. So you're you're floating there, and you can't stay together. Um, you, you're probably in you're in physical shock, as you said, and you're probably in in some mental shock. And you know, my thought is, how how does one even put together a coherent thought under that kind of environment? And so I wanted to ask, you know, can you remember or recall a little bit? You know what you're think. What 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 were you thinking? Uh, were you thinking, hey, I, I, you know, were you in survival mode of we got to stay together, uh, we got to we got to hold on? Were you just in you know a mode of wow, this gas can slippery? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. what what was going through your mind? Um, I tried to I tried to recreate that or remember that many many times. Um, shock at first. And that's kind of hard to describe. When you're in shock, your whole emotional system is so overloaded, overloaded that put words to that. But um, we were in shock. We were drifting apart from each other. We were trying, like you just said, we were trying to stay together, but it didn't work. I made it to Barb once, but away, and I tried to get to her, and I tried to. I was holding on to the gas can that I had with my right arm wrapped around it, and with my left arm, I was paddling like mad to get back to her, but it wouldn't move. I mean, it moved, but it was in slow motion, and I remember thinking, oh, this is what it's like 
your system is shutting down and it just doesn't do what you want it to do. In other words, I just wanted to paddle like mad to get back to Barb the next the second time, and it just wasn't working. And we asked each other, some of us who were close enough to talk to each other, um, do you think anybody knows where we are? The pilot who said, well, I told him our latitude, longitude and latitude. And, uh, you know, we're kind of going, I'm, at least I'm thinking, hey, what is that going to result in? And um, and I've asked, people have asked me many times, did you think you were going to die? And, um, and I said, no, I thought that somehow or another we're going to survive this. But I'll tell you, there was no evidence of that 20 whole minutes. I mean, 20 minutes is a long time. If we just stopped what we're doing right now and just did nothing for 20 minutes, you'd go, oh, that's an eternity. <laughs> for 20 minutes, we did not know they even saw us. Well, then when we saw a plane flying in a circle over us, I remember thinking, maybe somebody can see us. No, it was they did not see us for four minutes. Person sitting next to the plane, uh, pilot, I think I see two people down there splashing in the water. And, oh, no, there's three, there's four. And the pilot transmitted that word to the air traffic controllers that there were, they'd counted five people splashing in the water. And then that pilot said, somebody's got to take my place. So a pilot that was taking out of Nome right at that minute said, I've got 90 minutes of fuel, I'll come. So pretty soon, here are nine, seven of us in the water looking up, and we see two planes in a circle. Looks like one is chasing the other. The first guy takes off and disappears. And then that pilot sort of uh, kept watch, if you want to put it that way, until showed up. Until the helicopter. Uh, one of them was stationed in Nome. So now showed up 40 minutes after we had hit the water. Life expectancy in 36-degree water is between 5 and 13 minutes. So we had already outlived several times when the two helicopters showed up. And when they came, the only equipment they brought with them were seven body bags. So then the two helicopter pilots did the impossible. They put their bellies of the helicopters into the swells of the ocean, two passengers in one helicopter, one in the other, and carried air, sea, rescue, and aviation history. That's what was written in one aviation magazine several years ago. Here today, because, of course, of the grace of God, series of miracles connected one to the other, to the other, to the other, <laughs> and, and miracles maybe that heaven we'll never even know about but we know enough about most of these dots in the chain that we stand in absolute awe of God's providence mm -hmm. of God in a sense saying these folks need to be able to continue their ministry so we've you know moved forward with our lives uh, in the aftermath of this and it's been an amazing it's an amazing story. Dave, I have a question for you, which is, at what point in uh, in this story did you feel 
I, I'm safe. I'm or or thought you know I'm go, I'm going to make it. Well, when when the two helicopters showed up, and they and they came down, impossible situation. I mean, if it was ever made into a made for television movie, and if it was done accurately, sit in your living room watching this and say they've made this up. Hmm. They've over dramatized this whole thing. Um, the two helicopters came, and they to the f- most fit among us, a guy by the name of Brian, 23 years old. And they came, one of the helicopters came to Brian. And the guy that was on the skid of the helicopter reaching out to Brian got his hand hmm. with his right hand pointed to another person. And he was our pianist who was uh, six foot four and... He had two gas cans that he was hanging on to. He was standing straight up and down in the ocean, and his hands were on the little metal of these two gas cans. Handles, yeah. And he was not in good shape or physically. He had uh, leg cramps. He couldn't touch his legs. He was holding on to his cans. He's going up and down with the swells. And the younger guy, the 23-year-old guy, Brian, is arguing with him saying, Carrie, they're, they're going to come for us. They're, we're going to live through this, Carrie. You're going to see your wife and family again. And it was hard for Carrie to believe any of that. So when they came to Brian, with his left hand, the, the rescuer is holding on, and with Brian's right hand, he's pointing off. And the pilot up in the helicopter figured it out and said, okay, we need to get that other guy first. And he gunned the engines. Wow story to a few people the man that was holding on to brian's hand said words you're not going to say you're supposed to say in church and uh their hands came apart and carrie was rescued first the end of the story is that carrie that brian the 23 year old was rescued last Hmm. and he was in the water 65 minutes And in the episode, Dave, we hear one of the people is hanging on by their legs or something? Not, no. Barb was, her rescuer had her neck between his legs. Oh, my goodness. And what was just he? Just above his legs. And he wrapped his, his legs around her body best as he could and told the pilot to take off. The problem was that Barb is wearing a fiber-filled winter coat, and when it's sopping wet, it weighs 50 pounds. So the weight of Barb's body and this 50-pound coat was too much to get her any further than the knees of her rescuer. And as they approached this uninhabited 760-foot island with crashing waves against the big boulders at the base of that island, that's when he lost her. She fell from his grasp back into the ocean a second time. And uh, and then that dear man, a Canadian man by the name of Dave Miles, rescued her the second time. And Barb had an out-of-body experience. It's quite a very dramatic part of the story. She was dying, and she even told him that to go away. She just didn't want to be rescued again. And he persisted. And um, I have a wife today because of... Wow. Of uh, of that persistence on his part, we love this guy a lot. How did that happen, and, Dave? Um, how did how did he rescue her a second time? Could you just describe that? He um, he got out of his helicopter and without any life jacket. Mm-hmm. He'll say in the video in the uh, 
documentary video we have that the water took his breath away. He made his way to Barb. Barb said, go away. And he persisted, and he got a hold of her hand, and he dragged her up onto a boulder. He took off this 50-pound coat and started to rub her hands and bring some circulation back into her body. And then, while that was going on, a couple of us got up to the top of that island. There are five of us up there. Was I was conscious, and I was... I wasn't very stable, and I'm, I'm sure if somebody had had a video, I was kind of wobbly. The island, because I was, I had come to the conclusion that I was a widower. Mm. Getting Brian's body, and they were getting Barb's body. Mm. And I was looking down 760 feet to see what was going on down at the ocean, when suddenly two helicopters, the twin-engine helicopter, it just appeared. It's just like you've seen in a movie. And sat down, and one of the guys up on the top of the island with me said, Dave, they've got Barb. And out of that helicopter came two guys with Barb in the middle, and we made our way to each other, and then they had Brian. So seven of us were there, and then they were, we were repositioned in the helicopters. I mean, we were seven of us the rescuers, the pilots. It was too many people for those two helicopters, <laughs> but we were flown to Nome oh my goodness. to the hospital and and uh, work on us started by the doctors and nurses. It's a it's a very powerful story with, you know, elements that some people, oh, it's coincidence or it's a, it's an anomaly. But when you go that far and you, like you said, you connect the dots or you chain all those things together, the probability becomes uh, self-limiting, <laughs> and it it has to be supernatural. So um, I, we really appreciate you sharing the story. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Five, six years later, I flew to Toronto to take her rescuer and his wife to dinner. Um we were sitting at dinner, and Dave Miles, her rescuer, looked at me and said, Dave, I think there's something about this story you've never heard, that he had gone to Nome for a three- or four-day work project on his part. When they got to Nome, they could not do their work for two weeks. They sat in their room at a motel for two weeks, because the ceiling was so low, they could not safely get in their helicopter and do this geophysical survey work. So he said, finally, on the 13th of August, the skies cleared. Flight center called up and said, you're ready to go. You're fine. Hmm. Dave Miles and his wife, Kathy, across the dinner table, and I'm sure I had tears streaming down my face because I said, Dave, you mean the rescue could not have happened the day before or the day before or the day before or the day before or the day before. Going back 14 days, uh, nobody had ever told me that. It was kind of like frosting on the cake because we realized that in addition to all the other miracles, the the guys cleared on the th – in other words, we could not have been rescued – on any day for two weeks preceding this. And then, top of everything else, the pilot that spotted us was on a 
was one hour late that day on a regularly scheduled flight. He, he, wow. Airline scheduling point of view, he should not have been in the area at all. So got on a plane one time in Phoenix to fly to Minneapolis, and sitting next to me was a, a very nice atheist. I said, why are you going to Minneapolis? I said, I'm going to speak at a banquet tonight. He said, what are you going to talk about? I said, I'm going to tell the story of surviving a plane crash. He said, was it this airline's? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> he was glad. And and for two hours and 45 minutes, he said, and then what happened? And then what happened? And the, we came into Minneapolis, he said, to what do you attribute this amazing set of circumstances? I said, it's not a to what, it's a to whom. Hands of a personal, merciful, powerful God and had our lives in his hands and allowed us to res- to be rescued from this situation so that I could sit next to you and say that God is in control and that he has our lives in his hands. And I said he wants to have your life in his hands. And this man looked at me with all my heart. His disbelief system was unraveling two hours and 45 minutes. That's a very powerful testimony. Man, Dave, I wish we had more time. I wish we had, you know, two and a half hours like that guy did. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you'd fall asleep after a while. <laughs> well, Dave, man, what a what an amazing story, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I just wanted to say that as the 24 years have gone by, and I've shared this story a lot of times, make the point that God is the God of the overwhelming circumstances in our lives of the circumstances that don't make sense, of the questions that have no answers. Um, And sitting in an audience or listening to this program right now is somebody in the midst of an impossible situation, and there doesn't seem to be a way out. I'm here to remind you that God is not caught off guard, that you need to trust him, and that when you cross the finish line, like all of us are going to do at some point in our lives, you're going to have answers that you don't have now. But in the meantime, hey, I'm on a have that peace that passes all understanding. When I understand that God is my God, that I believe him and he's my savior through faith in Jesus Christ, trust him to do the best for me and to have courage to face the issues or the circumstance that I find myself. So I just want to share that. And I can't think of a better way to wrap up this program than with those words. Uh, if, if you get a chance uh, to come to the Brinkman's dot, brinkmanadventures.com to check out more podcast episodes as well as Adventures of the Brinkman Adventures, including Dangerous Waters 1, 2, and three. What about Dave and what he's doing now? Before we wrap? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, ministry that I'm involved in now is a ministry called Shepherd's Canyon Retreat. We provide counseling, week-long counseling retreats for pastors, military chaplains, missionaries, uh, Christian teachers, and so forth. Website for that ministry is very simple. It's called shepherdscanyonretreat.org. You know of anybody, somebody who's listening to this right now, knows of a pastor with burnout or stress or depression or conflicts, tell them about 
the Shepherd's Canyon Retreat Ministry. Well, thank you, Dave, for being on the show. And um, for our listeners, if you've got any questions or want to hear other podcasts or see episodes or, or listen to episodes of the Brinkman Adventures or purchase the CDs, head over to brinkmanadventures.com. And until next time, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye.